Hey, good morning, everybody. How you doing? You know, when you get old, you kind of start forgetting stuff. So, uh, Merry Christmas. Welcome. Uh, if you're a guest, we're really glad you're here. It's going to be a great weekend. We're going to the movies this month. And, uh, you know, Christmas is a time when a lot of us probably take in a few more movies. There's the box office smashes are out there. Some of you will go see, you know, the new, the new Paddington or the Hobbit movie, I suppose. But we like to watch the old ones. I watched uh, Miracle on 34th Street last night with our family. We were putting up the tree. And uh, that's an oldie but a goodie. A um, little slow, but good. Uh, but that, what we've done is we picked kind of four favorites. Last week we talked about uh, Christmas Vacation. Next week, uh, uh, Home Alone. Uh, and then on Christmas Eve, I really hope you invite somebody. Uh, we're going to use Elf as a place to, to launch. And uh, is it going to have a lot of fun with that? But these, these, are, these are films that a lot of us know, but they point to really important biblical truths that have a lot to do with our lives right where we are right now. Today we're going to talk about what, when, one of the ones you'd have to include if you're kind of making a list of some of the old classics, a, a Charlie Brown Christmas. How many have seen a Charlie Brown Christmas? Here's, that, here's a classic graphic of it. You know, you've seen it. You know, this is the, this is the Charlie Brown, 1965. Yeah, it goes way back, almost, almost 50 years now. Um, it was the, based on the Peanuts uh, comic strip by Charles Schultz. And how many have, remember watching, uh, looking at that every weekend in the paper, right? That was a big deal. Uh, Charles Schultz, good Minnesota boy, uh, he had this idea, and they put together this thing. I discovered they really threw it together in just a couple of weeks. He wrote the script real fast. They grabbed neighborhood kids to do the voices. Uh, made a couple of radical decisions, no laugh track, and put jazz music to it. It was kind of out of the box. Everyone thought it was going to flop, and it was a huge hit. The critics loved it, and of course, 50 years later, they're still showing it. And I think one of the reasons we, we like it is it just, um, it just it, it speaks to a kind of classic expression uh, of this kind of simple um, unadorned, beautiful Christmas the way maybe it really could and should be and what, and what really it stands for. Um, you know, in the original, um, the producers came to Charles Schultz and they said, we need to cut out that section where Linus comes and reads the um, Christmas story or recites Luke 2. And uh, he said, if you cut that, I ain't doing it. And so they left it in. And of course, it's the very centerpiece of the thing when this little boy with a blankie and a lisp goes to center stage and, and says, you know, those beautiful words, I know what Christmas is really all about. Today in the town of David, uh, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. It's the center. Linus knew it. Uh, Charlie Brown knew it. Charles Schultz knew it. And in fact, we kind of know it. And I think it's just a beautiful um, story because of the simplicity of it. And I, I think the center symbol, if you know that film, uh, the center symbol is that stupid little bare, little almost uh, not alive sapling, that little pine tree. Lucy and his friends tell, uh, her friends tell Charlie Brown to go get a Christmas tree that really fits. And they want him to bring back a fancy schmancy one, one of the big new aluminum ones, or one with a lot of lights and a big strong one and everything. But he and Linus go, and they look through the lot, and he's drawn to this little tiny weak little one with hardly anything on it, tiny bare sapling, and he says, I think this is the one, and besides, I think it needs me. And so he brings this back, and of course, all the kids, they laugh at him, and they mock the tree, and um, they say, you're a real loser, you're a mess, Charlie Brown. But when the true focus of Christmas comes into, into view, they have a big change of heart, and uh, it ends with all of those friends gathered appreciatively around that tree, adorning it and singing Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It's a beautiful ending and a great story. I, for one, have always, have always felt like the little tree, that little kind of Charlie Brown tree. 
uh, symbolizes Jesus himself. I've always felt that way. And when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. You know, a scripture says that um, the Messiah would come out of a, would spring up out of a stump of Jesse, would be like a little sapling. And uh, Jesus, in fact, came in the flesh as a tiny bare sapling of a human. Not what anyone would have expected and, in fact, was rejected at first. The prophet said he'll be despised and rejected, and he was. John said that his own received him not. You know, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's exactly the way that little tree was received. You're a real mess up. They laughed, they mocked because he was marked by such simplicity. And yet we know the story of Jesus ends the same way with Jesus lifted up after the resurrection and all who have received him recognize already his greatness and of course all of history is going to end with all of God's people gathered around that simple bare Messiah praising the Lord of glory for his victory and greatness. And somehow, I think, in a few minutes of animated cartoon, we get a little bit of a taste of some of that about how all of that greatness and glory really begins and comes to us in simplicity. I'd like us to think about our lives and the message of God in your life and how important the matter of simplicity is today. Because God didn't send His Son like a superhero with some amazing, intricate, complex strength to work out or some high-tech weapon or fancy gadget with an intricate plot. No, no. God sent His Son as a simple human baby whose job was to grow up and love people. He was sent to be born, to die, to rise, to reign. And that's exactly what happened. Simple plan, simple mission, simple strategy. And I think... This idea of simplicity is woven right into the story of Christmas in ways we sometimes miss. I want to take a couple minutes and walk you through the, the classic text of Christmas and we're going to pull out some things to help see how simple there really is uh, of a message here. So go ahead and open your Bible if you got it. Luke chapter 2 or get it on your phone app or whatever, wherever you keep your Bible um, uh, these days. And um, this is the part that Linus recited. This is the classic telling of the Christmas story, the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. It starts with those days of Caesar Augustus. He has the, uh, the, uh, the enrollment or the census, and everyone has to go to their own town to register. So Joseph goes uh, uh, you know, up from Nazareth down there to Bethlehem with his Mary, who's expecting. And uh, um, you can follow along on the screen. You tell me what happens next. Start in verse 6, all right? While they were there, the time for the baby uh, came to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. What did Mama Mary do to the little baby? Wrapped him in claws and placed him in a manger. Why did she do that? Because that's where they were. There was no room for them in the, uh, in, in the other place. All right, verse 8. Who comes into the story next? Shepherds, right. There were shepherds living out in their fields nearby, watching their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified, I should say. You would be too. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people, because today in the town of David, what happened? The Savior's born. And who is he? He's the Messiah, the one that everyone had been waiting on. The Messiah finally came, a Savior. So he gives the shepherd a sign to know how to find him. What's the sign? This will be a sign to you. You will find what? Wrapped up. Yep, lying in a manger. Okay, verse 13. And with that, ta-da, here come angels. Heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven 
And what gift is going to come to people because of this Jesus? Peace. Peace on those upon whom his favor rests. And then the angels, they left, they gone into heaven. What did the shepherds say they were going to go do? Yeah, you're not worried. You weren't ready for that one. We're going to go over to Bethlehem. We're going to see the baby. Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has told us about. They hurried off, and what did they find? Mary and Joseph and the baby wrapped up and lying in a manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. Notice this. What did Mary do? Verse 19. Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds, they returned. They went back home glorifying and praising God for all the things they'd heard and seen, which were just as they'd been told. I want to dig around a little bit in that text and pull out a couple things that I hope, I think, with the advantage of some historical study here, will reveal some of the simplicity and the humility of the way which God comes to us. Because that's, I think, important to us for a lot of reasons. You probably noticed the word manger keeps appearing there over and over again, right? Well, what is it? A manger is a feed trough. Sometimes these little wooden things like you see in a creche in the nativity sets, but a lot of times just a feed trough. You know, at our house we have a couple of dogs, uh, Rambo and Jeannie, and they get fed every morning a little scoop of uh, dog chow, you know, and put them in the clink-clink bowl, and they dance and prance around. They're just like high-fiving each other, like, awesome, we get to eat. I feel like saying, you realize this is the same food you've had every day, every day of your life, right? And they're like, we don't care. We think you're awesome. We love you, man. Just bring us the food. This is great. You know, by the way, anyone have a cat that ever talks to them like that? Nope. <laughs> Anyway, they slobber and they get their saliva all over those bowls. And come to think of it, I don't ever wash those bowls out. They just kind of keep putting food in there and they lick it clean. Their breath stinks, something fierce. Not the kind of thing you want to eat out of yourself. Trust me. But when the Savior of the world, the Messiah God, sends Jesus into the world, that's where he rests in an animal dish, in a feed dish, right? You hear the word manger, and I think because of all the Christmas plays and the artist rendering over the years, we've come to think of a barn or a stable somewhere out in the country. But traditional Middle Eastern villages, a manger would have been right in the home, would have been in the house. The simple villages in those days and still today were typically two, most of the time, three rooms. Um, and I got a little map here to kind of show you. This is a rendering of exactly what houses then and still today in peasant homes look like. The main room there in the center is the family room where they lived, cooked, ate, slept, right? Then um, they would have usually over there on the right, you see an adjacent room for guests because hospitality was a huge deal and it was a matter of honor. You'd always welcome people. And then at the other end was a stable area with a floor that usually dropped down so you could sweep all the stuff out the door. And you see the area on the left, that's where you'd bring the family cow, the donkey, the sheep, whatever you had, and tie them up at night. Their body heat would add additional warmth to the house. That's good. And you don't want anyone to steal them. And then you can just shoo the poo in the morning. All right. Then you see the elongated circles there. Those are the mangers. They're just feeding dishes or troughs that would be dug out of the floor usually on the lower end of the living room for the animals. So they're standing lower and they can reach right there and eat. And you see homes like that traced from the time of David all the way up to the current day in Bethlehem if you go there today. On the other side on the right you see a guest room. That's really what it is. Some older versions of the Bible translated the word inn. There was no room for them in the inn. Well, we've been trained to think that Mary and Joseph are running around looking for no vacancy or vacancy signs and looking for a hotel or something. But really... It's referring probably to what most peasant homes had in those days, and that is a guest room. Simple peasant guest room. And that's exactly how Luke uses that word in other places. It just means room, extra room. Like when they went to the upper room for the Last Supper, they said, go find one. It's the same exact word. 
And it makes perfect sense. So she had to give birth. She gave birth and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the guest room. And that makes sense because of the census. All kinds of relatives were visiting. So I don't want to burst any Christmas bubbles and ruin your nativity set, but the fact is, based on the Bible and what most historians know, the birth of Jesus took place probably in an ordinary house of some common peasant, maybe a relative. The baby was laid in one of those feeding mangers, probably with crushed straw because there was no room in the other end of the house. Now notice there's also what we used to call swaddling clothes. He's wrapped up tightly in those strips of cloth or a blanket of some kind. That's an ancient custom. You can read about it in the Bible. Ezekiel 16.4. Babies were wrapped that way. It was, it was cheap and convenient. And still in Syria and Palestine today, that's what they do with their babies. The verse meant that she wrapped him in the way that peasants wrap their babies. Put him in a feed trough in that house. And then notice uh, who the birth announcement is made to. Who's the first people to hear the news? Shepherds. Now, if you've been around Mountain, you probably know this already, but shepherds in the first century were very, very poor, and they were considered social outcasts. They were ceremonially unclean. They were ritually and religiously prevented uh, from going near the temple because they were defiled. They touched animal poop all the time and dead animals and all those things that ruled them out. And so they were, on top of that, kind of uncouth, redneck hicks and uneducated and notoriously dishonest. And so nobody really wants them around. And yet when God shows up on the planet, where does he go? First of all, over to some shepherds at night. Interesting, isn't it? It says in the Bible here that the shepherds were afraid, maybe first of all from the light, but I think another thing that they must have been afraid of is the angel says, now go check it out. You go up. This is the Messiah. You go see him. And they probably thought to themselves, well, there's probably going to be guards and priests kicking us out of there like they do at the temple. We can't even go near God. These are people who can't go to the house of God. And yet the the angel is saying, go see the Messiah. And so I think it's interesting how God figures out a way to convince them it's okay to go check it out anyway because he tells them through the angel that they're going to find the baby wrapped up which is exactly the method that they themselves, peasants like shepherds, would have done with their own newborn children. And he's not going to be in some royal garb. He's going to be lying there in a manger. In other words, they're going to find the Christ child in an ordinary peasant home just like their own home. Not going to be in a governor's mansion. Not going to be at some rich merchant's shop. Not going to be in a palace. Not going to be downtown at the headquarters, not lying on some silk satin pillow. But God's Savior is found in a simple two-room peasant home just like the one they go back to once in a while. Wrapped up and lying in a manger would have sounded as familiar and disarming to them as in a onesie with a blankie would sound to us. And so the simplest of people are the ones that God thinks might be most ready to meet a simple Savior. Simple people. A simple Savior comes for simple people. And I think that's part of the power of what I hope is happening in your life in these weeks. I hope that each of us would, in the craziness of everything going on, try to find a way to get close to God during this season. It doesn't matter how far off you've been. It doesn't matter how unclean you may feel or what kind of bad experience you've had at the house of God in the past. Because there's a simple Savior who comes to a house just like yours, the one you live in. And I think for people like us whose lives are a lot of times pretty hectic and crazy and busy, 
with a lot of hang-ups about a lot of things, maybe the truth of what we need to hear the most today might be that God is telling you the same thing he was telling those shepherds. Will you just stop making this whole thing more complex than it needs to be and just go be with Jesus? Just stop making it more complex and worried about everything you need. Can you just, can you find some time to go be with Jesus? Maybe that's the fresh way that you need to meet God. Can you just go be with Jesus? So, that's the birth arrival. Simplicity. No birthing suite. No fancy IVs and gowns and epidurals and maids and doctors and nurses. No, none of that. No balloons or cigars or teddy bears. No phone calls to relatives, no birth certificate, no new outfits, squeaky toys or those little intercoms so she can find out if he's crying in the next room. It's just like God took great pains not to come with splendor and majesty and might and power and brouhaha, but he came under cover of darkness silently at night, tucked into some peasant's house on the outskirts of a little know-nothing town in the middle of the Mideast 2,000 years ago. Everything about the coming of God speaks of simplicity. And when you think about it, Jesus' whole life was a life of simplicity, wasn't it? Just singularity of purpose, freedom that he had, just so he, cause it, cause it was simple. He's, he lives this unhurried, uncluttered, unanxious life, unworried. Yeah, he, he, didn't, he didn't even own a home, didn't have a place to lay his head, always visiting with others, no, no mortgage, no car payment, no lawn care insurance, vehicle upkeep. He said, it, Jesus is the guy who says, you know, it's good to be like a bird, you know, because they just fly around and don't worry about stuff. Why don't you just be, you, you, we should all just be like flowers, he says. You know, they don't get up and stress about going to work every day. They just, whatever happens, they trust God to provide. When the disciples are freaked out in the boat in the middle of a storm, he's sleeping through it. They wake him up, he says, you got so little faith. He just was refreshingly simple about everything and his trust with God. When Martha is rushing around with her hair on fire, the sister Mary is sitting at his feet just listening to Jesus soaking it up and he says, she's chose the better part. When they cornered him and said, what's it really all about? How do we please God? He said, simple, love God, love people, serve the world. And toward the end of his life, he said, I'm going to die, and on the third day I'm going to rise again, and all who trust in me will have eternal life. Simple. And then he did it. On the cross, he said, it's finished. Father, forgive him. Then he died. Three days later, he rose again, just like he said he was going to do. And then he showed himself to hundreds, and then he says, okay, and as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. Now go. Simple. And we love that about Jesus, don't we? There's something really clear, simple, and fresh, and we long for that in our own lives, don't we? Some simplicity. I think especially at Christmas. What does the tree of your life look like at Christmas? How, how might you prune, clip away some unneeded branches in your life? How might you prune the tree of your cluttered, over-busy, over-committed life so that it could be simpler, clearer, purer, truer, closer to the heart of God? It's a very important question I find in my own life. I love at the end of that section there, verse 19, Mary has observed all this, angels yelling and shepherds coming and all that stuff, and it says in verse 19 that Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. That's a cool statement. She She's reflecting. She's chewing on it. She's thinking on it. She's living with an idea. She's 
soaking it up. She's not rushing off. I, I, I contrast that to my own life where my brain feels like I got monkeys on branches in a tree jumping around yelling. And then I see Mary. She treasured up these things and she pondered them in her heart. Maybe that's why Mary could be the one who'd say, Lord, whatever you want, be done to me according to your word. And I, if you want your life to be simple like Mary's, to be able to say, Lord, I hear you. I want to do what you were leading me to do. Maybe we've got to ponder a few more things in our heart. And that won't happen until we're simple. Get a little closer to Charlie Brown or the tree or to Mary or to Jesus himself. So how do we move toward simplicity? Does anybody want to have a life that's just a little more marked by simplicity? I hope so. I mean, can, can you admit that once in a while your life's out of control? <laughs> that's maybe a place to start. Between the technology and the responsibilities and the information explosion and the overcommitments and the bombardment of, bombardment of noise and stuff and people and things. Have you ever said, man, how did my life get so out of control? Why can't I manage my time? Has anyone ever said, why did I say yes to this? Yeah? How did I get so busy? Whether you're a pastor or a parent or a student or a business owner, or a teacher, or a doctor, or a mail carrier, we all share the same sense of this crushing weight of work and family and pressure to perform and church and, and friends and a barrage of requests that we can't seem to keep up with that leaves us kind of frazzled and harried and overwhelmed much of the time with this growing sense, if you're honest and listen to your deep heart of hearts, that there's this sense of disappointment some of us have that life is zooming by once in a while you have this moment that you think, maybe I'm not living the right best life. Is there a simpler way? If you've ever felt like you've missed too many moments where you could have had a prayer connection with God. If you've ever felt like you've skipped some quiet time with the Lord. If you've ever felt like you've been too impatient with people that you care about because they're kind of getting in the way of some stuff you committed to that you've got to get done. If you've ever feel like you have taken a spouse or someone you care about for granted because you don't really have time to stop and bask in that relationship and you end up just sort of serving them leftovers because you're zooming through your life at Mach 5 speed which means you don't have time to listen or love or invest if you've ever felt like you know God is there waiting but you're not sure you have time to really love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength so you'll just do some religious stuff to sort of check that box and we just don't know sometimes how to get off of the treadmill of our life that's racing ever onward if you've ever felt any of those things I can relate, I've felt all of them feeling some of them now. And I think all of us, in addition to all of that, feel something else. And that is a sense lurking deep inside our soul, if we would just listen to it, that's a kind of longing for a simpler, cleaner, better way that feels more like the calm, simple, different Jesus way. So I hope you're going to hear God's voice calling to you in the next few minutes here. And I want to urge you to use these moments as a time to make some changes. To add some things in that will actually reduce the craziness. To make a commitment to live a life that's simpler, not just for any other reason other than it's, it's the life you're meant to live and it'll help you connect with who you're meant to be and with the God who made you in a better way. I think we all know it. 
So what are some practical steps that each of us can take to move toward a sane, simpler life of peace so we can come like simple shepherds and actually be with Jesus? How about I throw some softballs at you and you hit as many as you can, okay? I'll throw some softballs at you. I hope you take every one of them. You ready? How about we start with slow down. Everybody say slow down. Slow down. I have an app on my phone. You can take slow motion video. I, I tried it the other day, but I, was, I, I, didn't, I tried to replay it back. It was taking too long. I didn't even bother watching it. Less hurry, I have found, will help your simplicity ratio. Less hurry. There's more to life than increasing its speed. Some of us just need to learn how to chew our food more slowly. Sit down when we eat. Have a conversation. And enjoy the people around us. Savor the meal and the day. Take in the view. Smell the roses. Notice life. Be grateful. Those things don't happen when you're in a hurry. You can't pray in a hurry. You can't love your kids in a hurry. To go for walks. Whenever we went for a walk for the kids, I'd want to hold their hand and they maybe have memories of, oh, that's fun because daddy's holding my hand. No, it's because I want them to keep up with me. You kids walk too slow. Let's go for a walk. I'm the worst one to teach this, this, this material, maybe the best one. You ever notice that Jesus never seemed to be in a hurry? Never seemed to have an anxious spirit about him? Never, never seemed to have anything other than that trust and focus and serenity. He had more on his plate than you do, but he didn't hurry. We wear business like a badge, don't we? We probably need to hear the words of Dallas Willard who says the most important thing for modern people like us is to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. So I got a speeding ticket in 2014. You know why? I was speeding. And, and, and the reason that happened is I wasn't paying attention because I was just going along, talking to one of my kids, and we are having a good time. And when you don't pay attention and try intentionally to slow down, guess what? You end up speeding up. That's what happens. Very easy to happen out on the interstate. Guy pulled me over. He says, Why, where, where are you going in such a hurry? All nonchalant, southern boy. It's like, yeah. I said, I'm going the same place I would be going if I was going slower. I was just planning on getting there quicker. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. Because at that point, you're still hoping for the old warning hope. <laughs> yeah, he said, yeah, slow down. And handed me a little ticket that invited me to invest in our government. Life's the same way, isn't it? You, 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 if you don't intentionally do something to slow down, you'll end up speeding up. If you don't pay attention to it, you'll find yourself getting carried away. Anyone learn this to be true? If you don't deliberately slow down, life accelerates. And it's like, oh, how do I get to It's like we just need Jesus to come in and just say, where are you going in such a hurry? Slow down. Because the faster you go, the more you miss. Here's a question. What would your spouse or friend, close friend, say is... One thing they would love to see changed about your schedule. If you have a kid in your life, what, what would your kid say is one thing they would love to see change about your schedule? If you're a kid, what would your parents say, do you think, is the one thing they'd love to see changed about your schedule?
We've got to slow down enough. One thing that can happen when we're going fast is, is listening in relationships. Charlie Swindoll told about how he was, he was in a period of his life, he had way too many commitments in the time that he had to get them done. He's nervous, he's tense, he's carrying all that home with him. Everything's tense, he's snapping at his wife, choking down his food, feeling irritated all the time at interruptions coming into his day. We all can relate to that. Before long, he said things started reflecting it in the house. He says, I distinctly remember supper uh, one evening, the words of our younger daughter, Colleen. She says, Daddy... Uh, she, I, I, she wanted to tell something important. She says, Daddy, I want to tell you something, and I'm going to tell you really fast. And suddenly realizing her frustration, he said, Well, honey, you can tell me, but you don't have to tell me really fast. Just say it slowly. He says, I'll never forget her answer. She said, Then listen slowly. Take a deep breath. How can you slow down this week, driving, eating? getting ready, living. Slow down. It's a big old fat softball. Every one of us can hit that one. How about this one? Search for silence. Silence. I have learned, and it is an immutable truth, that less noise means greater simplicity. Can we just turn off the radio when we're driving once in a while? Just have quiet. Find some time when you just soak in the rich sounds of silence in your life. It'll let you have a possibility of viewing the interior of your life where God wants to be. A part of your life you'll never see when there's noise. It's like we're afraid of it. I realize that Everybody's used to having Spotify, Pandora, always going in the background, TV on, you know, Fox News, CNN, NPR, BAL, Shine, whatever. Once in a while, can we just search for the silence that can only come from simplicity? Listen, silence is a gift, and almost nobody's going to give it to you but you. So search for it, seek it, create it. Elijah was like us. He was, he was all stressed out and worried and afraid and running for his life, exhausted, mentally depleted, spiritually dry, just like a lot of us might feel even right now. And in that moment, you really needed to hear from the Lord. And over in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 11, the, the Lord's going to show up and He's looking for God. Where am I going to find God in my crazy life? Then a great and powerful wind tore the mo- mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. And he thought, maybe this is where I'm going to hear from the great and powerful God. But, no, the Lord was not in the wind. And after that, there was an earthquake. And he thought, oh my, God's shaking things. He's going to show up and give me a word. No, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake was a fire, and he'd seen God with fire on the mountain. He knew God shows up in fire sometimes, but no, the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came what? A gentle whisper. One translation says, a sound of sheer silence. And that's where God was. In a whisper, God shows up and says, Elijah, how's it going? That's the voice a lot of us long to hear and some of us need to hear right now. The whisper of God, a still, small voice. And in that quiet moment, Elijah connected deeply with God, had a divine appointment, and it helped him immensely and changed his life trajectory for what was next. Don't you think it's about time that you had a meeting with God like that? It won't come in the middle of a storm. If our lives are always earthquakes and fires and windstorms, it's always shaking and cooking and blowing. We're not going to hear the voice of God, which often is still and small and quiet 
If you want to hear the voice of God, you've got to get out of the storm once in a while. Are you ever quiet? Do you ever stop talking? Do you ever get away from people who can't stop talking? Do you ever just leave the noise off so you can be alone with your thoughts and be like Mary and ponder something deeply in your own heart for a while? I think sometimes we're afraid of silence, but silence is a gift. so bad was it it's kind of nice and the word says in the hymn that we sing at Christmas how silently how silently the wondrous gift is given God won't come and grab your lapels he's going to come secretly quietly to the heart that is pondering something and not overcome with complexified noise if it is you may miss it the children of Israel one time were so stubborn and rebellious. And the Bible says in Isaiah 30, the way they were rebellious is they weren't listening to God. Ah, la, la, I can't hear you, God. It says, I can't hear you, can't hear you. And God sends the prophet Isaiah 30, 15. It's only in returning to me and resting that you'll be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But they would have none of it. And sometimes we're the same way. So schedule the sound of silence in your life. Some time when you can simply do what Psalm 46 says, be still and know that I am God. When are you going to be quiet? Simple. So slow down. Search for silence. How about this one? Spend less. We could talk a lot about this. I won't take much time right now, but just to say, what if we were less driven by the demands of what the season says we got to do and just quit wasting money on things nobody needs and paid more attention to a, a Charlie Brown Jesus kind of Christmas where it's about giving ourselves. Keep your bills down and your January stress will be down as well. So maybe we can stop, instead of teaching our kids that really it is about this stuff, maybe we just focus on relational gifts this year. What our family needs is not more stuff under the tree, but more time with the people who gather around it. So celebrate relational gifts. I love the coupon books that my kids give for back rubs and a fresh baked cookie or a walk or washing the car or tens and twenties. Let's, let's just, what if we could spend less? Instead of complaining about consumerism, what if we just practice contentedness? Slow down. Search for silence. Spend less. Here's one for you. Set aside some space. Our lives need margin. And we don't seem to have it. If I don't ruthlessly put in margin, there's none there. It gets filled up. I schedule everything out to the edges. When you look at a piece of paper, if someone's written on every available millimeter of that white space it's a cluttered mess you don't look at the paper and go oh what a great use of space you go it's a mess I don't even want to bother reading that and our lives are the same way when there's no white space when there's no margin when there's nothing there guess what then a lot of the things that are really important to us never happen we've got to learn to leave space for things that matter space for people space for God Space, if you want, we've got to have financial margin. We've got to have hobbies that, that, that come out of margin. Margin is where you appreciate a sunset and live and have a soul. Margin is essential. Mark chapter 6, this is Jesus and his friends. Because so many people were coming and going that they didn't even have a chance to eat. Anyone relate to a day like that? 
They have a chance to even eat a meal. Jesus finally says, whoa, 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 whoa. We, we got no margin here. Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. He takes them away to teach them that if a relationship's important to you, you've got, he's going to come away with them just to be with them and God. And if you want to have friends and family and a relationship with God, you've got to create margin just like that. To come away, set some space up in your life where people who are close to you can get something other than the leftovers from you. Relationships are the ones that always suffer when we're on fast-paced, scheduled-to-the-hilt living, isn't the truth? How many of you would love to say, man, I just wish I had a little more time to myself to rest or play or do something I enjoy or time to renew my relationship with God or spend more time with my family? We say all that, but if I gave you another hour a day, you'd be like me. You'd fill it with, some, you'd fill it with the same stuff you're filling it with now. So margin has become that thing to fill up rather than that white space, that buffer that allows us to live life. What are you saying is important in your life that you care about? And on your deathbed, you'll care about it. But you're not really leaving margin for now. Is it your marriage? Is it the kind of kids you hope to have someday? Is it some other relationship or connecting with God? Your health? When we're marginless, we end up serving the people we say we care about, leftovers. What are you saying? You want to be a priority that isn't happening because of no margin. Set some time aside. Don't schedule every second. Get the calendar out and leave some blank space. Slow down, search for some silence, spend less, schedule some space. How about this one? Screen your screens. How many screens we got going that we stare at and occupy our lives and fill our minds and agendas with so many things? Our, our phones and our iPads and iPods and computers, TVs. Normal is way too much screen time in the world we live in. Would you all agree with me? What's normal is way too much. Instead of these being tools that help us and bless us in so many ways that they do, we always go beyond that because we don't know how to stop because we're humans. So they end up using us. And what's happening is, and there's all data on this, all kind of research, they're shaping us. They're shaping the brains. Everyone is young. Their brains are being retrained. How they think, how they learn, how they process. Relationships and how we have relationships are totally being changed because of technology. It's time for us to learn how to fast from technology once in a while, to turn something off to leave it alone or leave it behind. Fasting is when you say, I love this or want that and think I need it, but I'm going to intentionally show who's boss here and leave it aside for a while. I'm not going to eat for this period of time so that I will master my stomach and in that longing I have for that food, I invite God to come into that space. We need to do that with our phones. We need to do it with our computer once in a while. We need to do it with video games. We need to do it with Facebook and words of friends and everything else. A fast. Facebook, blogs, Twitter, Instagram, Vine, Snapchat, surfing, YouTube, video games, Wii, laptops, iPads, iPods, TVs, movie screens, Wi-Fi, Blu-ray, email, unlimited texting, Google Maps, ESPN, check the score, talk to Siri. There's an app for that. We're addicted. A lot of us are addicted. And you say, no, I'm not. And I say, well, okay, then go 24 hours out looking at your phone. And then you'll say, okay, you're right. Some of you have checking Facebook messages and you can't wait to tweet what I just said. That's, a, that's the issue. Once in a while, don't you think it might be good to unplug? 
Don't you think it might be good just to be simple? Play a game, take a nap, read a book with pages. Call a friend, make cookies, make a card, make love, make a memory. Do something other than what the screen tells you is so important at the moment. Shut them off at dinner. Sing happy birthday without actually filming the moment. Jesus came as a, as a savior into the world. He didn't come with a virtual encounter. He came in the flesh. I've got to get better about this. Let's get eye contact instead of phone contact. Use your phone in church here for you version. That's great, but if you're really just texting and playing words with friends and checking Facebook, seriously, I think the thing is, the reason I go for my phone so often is sometimes we have this vague sense I'm going to miss something. Well, you know what? I've, I've figured out I am missing something when I do that. And we don't even know what we're missing, and you won't if you don't shut it off. So to take a Sabbath, technology fast, put them in a basket, declare a day, schedule a shutoff, screen your screens. Anybody agree? Can I get an amen? amen? All right, all you big talkers, let's see something. All right, all you big talkers, that's a good idea. Yeah, 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 okay. Let's see you do something about it. Let me give you one last one. Seek shalom. Shalom, you know what that word means, right? Not absence of conflict, but shalom stands for the sense of wholeness and salvation that all of us long for. Being right with the world, right with God, right with people around me. It's the, in other words, it's, it's salvation. It's the thing that's going to come when Messiah comes. And shalom was longed for for centuries and they greeted each other on the street. Shalom, shalom, shalom. Because they longed for it and they waited for it. And then the angel said, you know what? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, Shalom. To all y'all, that's good news of great joy. Shalom is here, and he's come. It's not going to come by just seeking silence. It's not going to come by getting a beer on the beach. It's not going to come by a little more yoga or, or talking to Yoda. It's going to come. It's going to come through the Prince of Peace, Jesus, the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So seek him and welcome him. Pursue him like a shepherd before the babe. Let's pray. Lord, we do want your peace. And we want more of Jesus and we want a simpler life. So forgive us for making our lives a bit of a treadmill, for running but not getting anywhere. We don't want to look back and say, I missed it. So help us to take some concrete steps like we've talked about so that in the end we might just be like simple shepherd coming before a simple Savior and grant us his peace, we pray. Amen.